Hello and welcome to the NHRA Insider Podcast with Brian Loans. On this episode, we're joined by Matt Hartford and Mike Clover, two racers who have been raising expectations and performing at a very high level during the 2019 season. We're going to get you up with both of them, get their impressions on the upcoming Chevrolet Performance U.S. Nationals, and also talk about the countdown and how their seasons have gone to this point. All that and a whole bunch more on this episode of the NHRA Insider Podcast with Brian Loans. Hello and welcome to the podcast this week. It has been a little bit of a delay between episodes, but I'm glad to be back at it, getting you some great fresh content here from the NHRA Mellow Yellow Drag Racing Series. It has been a busy couple of weeks in the sport of drag racing, and one of the reasons I was unable to produce this masterful podcast for you last week is because uh, I was part of that busyness, kind of running around, uh, going to the Bonneville Salt Flats, spending some time at Roadkill Nights in Detroit as well. And I think one of the first topics I wanted to discuss today was this point in the year for drag Drag racing, this point of the season, so much is happening all over the place. So much is happening kind of on top of each other. There are people that, uh, old people typically, that uh, have no clue about what's actually going on in the real world sit around and talk about the sport's demise and how nobody likes it anymore and how nobody attends races or racing events. And they're obviously wrong, of course, for a multitude of reasons, but anybody who leaves their home uh, understands that. Look at the crowds we've been seeing so far this season. Western swing races, super highly well-populated. Brainerd, as always, a blowout. It was a great weekend. But going back to this other topic, you know, on one particular Saturday night, we had uh, NHRA, there's a Lucas Oil Points race going on in Tulsa area or something like that. Then we had the World Series of Pro Mod going on, Roadkill Nights, the Nightfire Nationals in Boise, um, the uh, of course the giant Norwalk Spectacular that the Bader family puts on every year, the Night Under Fire, um, and the list goes on. There was like six major events. The Northern Nationals up at US 131 in Martin, Michigan going on the same night as well. So you know, and a lot of those events are happening kind of in the center guts of the country, and every one of them had humongous crowds. Detroit at Roadkill Nights, we were blown out. And for those of you unfamiliar, uh, what Roadkill Nights is, is the Roadkill and Dodge get together. They work with the city of Detroit, specifically Pontiac, and they take a section of Woodward Avenue. They put up walls, they put up fences, they bring a rotator tractors, they bring traction compound, and they prepare it into an eighth mile drag strip. And then uh, on that following day, 150 or so great uh, street legal cars show up, crazy side-by-side competition. Guys running in the fours and the eighth is getting it. The fours and the eighth on a public street with a timing system is insanity. And so that goes on all day and into the night and as a car show and everything else. But it's like one of the most unique drag racing events, in my opinion, in the country. And Matt Hagen, Leah come. They do burnouts on the street in their nitro cars it is uh, a good time had by all at the same time that's going on speed week at the bonneville salt flats is happening as well and a much smaller event certainly not a drag race it's a land speed race but it's a it's an event that has a ton of ties into the world of drag racing going all the way back to its, its founder wally parks was the president of the southern california timing association back in 1948 when they held the first speed week and the California Hot Rodders went to the Bonneville Salt Flats and drove their stuff as hard and as fast as it would go, and uh, it has evolved into the event that it is today. They raced for the same amount of money in 1948 as they do today at Bonneville, which is zero dollars. It is, uh, in some ways, the most pure type of racing environment, the most pure type of mechanical competitive environment you can have because there's no prize money. It's literally 
personal pride is what land speed racing is about. From the guys trying to set records on 50cc bikes at less than highway speed to uh, machines like a, a particular car called Target 550, which is this like 40 foot long, 9,000 pound streamliner that has a pair of uh, Les Davenport built alcohol burning blown Hemis all tucked into it. Uh, it is uh, it is the most unique racing experience you can have, and I would uh, I would tell everybody that is a drag racing fan that you owe it to yourself and to the history of our sport to go visit Speed Week at some point and just take it all in. You will also see a lot of drag racers there. Uh, Steve Gibbs, uh, former competition director for NHRA, was hanging out there. Got to chew the fat with him for a while. Mike Salinas was out on the salt. Uh, the, this Mike Strasbaugh, who's the uh, crew chief for Andy Whiteley, uh, runs a very successful Lakester out there with a blown alcohol Hemi in it. Uh, 350-, 370-mile-an-hour car, just wild stuff. Drag racing and land speed racing also share uh, something with each other in terms of uh, the weather's effect on not just the performance of the vehicles, but the performance um, of the venue. Salt, uh, to race on, People wonder, like, people ask what the consistency is like or what it's like to walk out on it. And it's really, it's kind of like walking on a a tightly packed dirt road. It's the best way I could probably describe it. But uh, the ideal situation in Bonneville is that the salt uh, kind of gets baked by the sun for uh, months in advance of the event. And then it's incredibly hard and it's incredibly uh, stable and strong and cars will actually leave rubber on the salt. It's so such a hard surface that if a car spins the tires on the starting line, it will leave black tracks. Unfortunately, this year, a rainstorm came in on Thursday and uh, it wasn't a very long one, but it was intense enough that it left a lot of moisture on the salt. And the problem with the dry lake is that when it gets wet, it wants to be lake again. That's, that's how nature works. So... Racing at Speed Week's always supposed to start on Saturday. They didn't actually send a car down the salt until Tuesday. And when they did that, the salt was pretty moist and damp. And, you know, there's nothing that the Southern California Timing Association could have done to stop the rainstorm. They were, they worked very hard for days to give people a venue to compete at. People that had towed cars across the country or shipped them from foreign countries did have an opportunity to run down the salt. Just wasn't the best salt anybody had seen in years. But we'll be doing it all again next year in, in August. And... Uh, one of the neat things, if you're an NHRA fan, Speed Week always, knock on wood, has fallen between the Seattle and Brainerd events. It has allowed a lot of racers to go out there and have some fun. It has also allowed schmucks like me to go out there and cover it for Bankshift.com uh, and the other journalists that are out there are covering it for their own their own different venues. But uh, something you should definitely have on your list. People always say, I'm going to go to Bonneville someday. Don't say go there someday. Just book your stuff. Get out there and enjoy the experience. You'll see cars and things that you never knew existed, and you'll become uh, very much more engaged in that world of land speed racing. So Bonneville, Roadkill Nights, all that stuff uh, following a, a Seattle race that was just beyond phenomenal. We've done our John Forrest episode. We're not going to relive that day anymore, but we certainly have uh, some guests on here that will have something to say, not only about just Seattle, but about the state of their season and what they're looking to do in the countdown. Ron Caps, Leah, Jason Line, the winners from Brainerd this week. Um, uh, you know, it's drag racing has this weird, you know, always seems to have this weird kind of poetic streak that runs through it at the right times. And everybody that wins a race, they build their own story throughout the day or throughout the weekend, right? When we look at Leah's story, 
we see a car and a team that have been in some finals this year. They had not won one yet. Uh, we see a guy like Neil Strasbaugh, who is very talented, working directly with Todd Okahara on making sure that car goes down the racetrack. And we see Leah. Uh, a driver that uh, has uh, taken her lumps sometimes by our, our own words from the tower, by our own criticisms of some things that she's done this year in terms of uh, starting line performance, perhaps, or car handling down the racetrack. But at the end of the day, we saw Leah at her best on Sunday, and we saw their team at their best on Sunday. We saw a woman driving like someone who was possessed, had great reaction times, had uh, no problems with the car, making sure it was stuck in the groove and down the racetrack, and a very well-earned win for that team, and it broke the streak, the Don Schumacher racing streak of over a year without their top fuel side winning the race. If we talk about the story of Ron Caps and Brainerd, uh, it is as always goes back to a story about Ron Caps and Ron Tobler. And Tobler, the, the guy that we've had here on the podcast and, and who approaches tuning a funny car in a way that uh, is different and mentally than I think a lot of other people, and it certainly paid off for him. Multi-time champion, has won races uh, all over the country, all over the, all over the known universe, and he and Ron Caps were spectacular together. And they were never the thundering quickest car on the grounds they were never like never someone that you looked at and said this car should win this race sometimes we see that sometimes we see a car that is so good in qualifying so good in the early rounds it turns into not can they win the race it turns into this car should win the race Ron Caps was not driving that car we thought then he goes and wins the race through a combination of his own work and through Ron Tobler, round after round, just a little bit here and a little bit there, a little bit of nip and tuck tuning on that thing, kept it squared on the racetrack, and uh, ultimately they win the race. Ron for the sixth time at Brainerd. And then there's Jason Line. You know, it, it just it doesn't get any better. It does not get any better to go to a place like a home track. And I mean a I mean a home track that is a legitimate home track. And I'm not taking this away from everybody because we all have that home track place that we love. We all have that home track place that uh, our, our great formative memories of drag racing are established in. And if we're talking about like a major market track, like if my home track, let's say, is the Strip at Las Vegas Motor Speedway, what a great place. What a cool place to be able to call that your home drag strip because of how nice it is and modern and well-kept and managed. Brainerd is a wonderful facility as well. The road course, the drag strip, the zoo, we all know all those attributes. But for Jason Line, like this is as home track as it gets. They know Jason Line there. They know him there. People there know him and love him. Now that they're not, not so much the other competitors, but certainly the fans and when someone like Jason succeeds at the place that, that they got their start, at the place that he even admittedly says is his favorite place in the world, um, it, we all get to enjoy that, even if we're not from there. I mean, it was a, it was a neat, it was a great final. Jason, always self-depreciating with the humor, but is is uh, truthfully not known as uh, you know one of the premier levers in pro stock. Thankfully, he builds a lot of really good horsepower that has bailed him out a couple of times when he's needed it but the final round was not that the final round was him being within two thousandths of erica enders on the leave she 14 he's 16 basically a push and him winning the race uh, on the horsepower so it's uh 54 10 thousandths i believe was the margin and let me tell you something the noise that that place made when he won 
it 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 was like the window to our broadcast booth it was like a screen door it was so loud the roar the absolute joyous roar people throwing their hands up over their head clapping screaming and yelling a very genuine moment in a season that has seen a lot of very genuine moments from our fans across the country that was really neat and uh, I think for for at least a short amount of time all of us uh, kind of felt like we were from Brainerd Minnesota uh, during that particular thing because the joy was palpable it was really really cool so as we continue on through the season the U.S. Nationals coming up next it is uh, it is my favorite race it is my favorite venue it is my favorite national event uh, to be a part of and you don't have to be some sort of uh, historian or dweeb to, to understand why that is but I'm excited that I'll be calling the sportsman action uh, starting on Wednesday through Friday as we don't make television until Saturday so um uh, NHRA said, hey, you want to come do the sportsman stuff? I said, hell yeah, I want to be there for the sportsman stuff. Stock Eliminator and Super Stock runs. Uh, then we got class eliminations. Class eliminations that will be punctuated by a whole lot of people being torn down, as the NHRA tech department has announced. There will be plenty of uh, mechanicing going on there at Indy this year in the uh, in the teardown barn. And also, uh, shameless plug here, NHRA.TV will be showing live streaming video uh, starting on Wednesday for the first time ever from the U.S. Nationals. So if you're interested in seeing something that no one else has ever seen live stream before, uh, you pay the 27 bucks at NHRA.TV, you buy the weekend pass, and you watch every single run from the beginning of the U.S. Nationals to its bitter end on Monday afternoon. So a man who has won the, the U.S. Nationals, uh, Mike Lober, uh, has won it. Uh, he's won a lot of races, but in 1989, uh, working for Don Prudhomme, tuning the funny car, they won in an incredibly dominant performance. We're going to talk to him about that. And a man who certainly is capable of winning the U.S. Nationals is Matt Hartford in Pro Stock. And Matt uh, has been having a career season so far. It has been uh, fun to watch, and it's been even more fun to follow along with him and his kind of. Uh, I don't want to say devil-may-care attitude, but at times it's the most refreshing thing in the world to see a guy who's not getting eaten up by the moment and who's kind of reveling in it. We'll get into all that as well. So there you have it. That's the setup on this episode of the NHRA Insider Podcast, and now it is time to welcome our first guest, a man who knows piston rings and knows pro stock. Ladies and gentlemen, Matt Harford for the second time on this show. Matt, and you know what? If you're uh, if you're making a second appearance on this show, you're living right. <laughs> yeah, it's uh, Brian. I appreciate you having me on the show. It's uh, it's always a pleasure to have conversation with you. So uh, we got a lot to talk about, man. Because um, since the last time we spoke uh, earlier on in the season, things have continued really on the the trajectory that they were on. And uh, your weekend in Seattle, um, your, specifically your Sunday, will go down as one of the great Sundays I think of any NHRA race we'll ever have. But uh, I don't want to go too far back in the past. But man. Just take me through that day because it was incredible. Well, the uh, you know it's, it's it's one of them things when you when you qualify ninth, you, you're you're not looking for the longest day ahead of you. You know you have your work <laughs> cut out for you, and that just goes based off the ladder. You know, for, first of all, you got to run the number eight qualifier who's basically tied with you yep. as far as ET. However, they have lane choice, and then the downfall is is you don't have a choice of what pair you're going to be, which means you're going to be first pair out, which is horrible in a pro stock car, as <laughs> you you've said and Reinhardt said for many years. And then if you are lucky enough to get through the first round, you're tasked with 
probably racing the number one qualifier, right. assuming that he beats the number sixteen guy. So it's not a good it's not a good plan for success to to qualify ninth ever in pro stock. Yeah, well, you you turned it to your advantage, and I think uh, a topic that we spoke about earlier in the season was just you know your driving versus confidence level, and we talked about how comfortable you were in the car. But man, you were uh, you were the guy you needed to be in Seattle, and like you said, every round was uh, every round was a big one there. Yeah, yeah, you know, we got we got through. Obviously, we beat Bo the first round, which was good. He's the points leader. Uh, you know, Jeggy, we were lucky enough to to get lane choice against him. You know, that that's a, another downfall in pro stock when you qualify number one as you run a number 16 guy. So you tend to say, I can pull back just a little bit. Let's just make sure we win the round. Versus if you're the number eight or nine guy, you know you got to run extremely strong against your competitor to, to, to beat them. And, and also you're saying if you win that round, you got to run the number one guy the next round. So you better go for it and go for lane choice. And in a place like Seattle, lane choice is critical. So we went after, we went for the jugular against Bo, went 56-2, I think, against them. And we ended up getting lane choice over Jeg in the second round and put him over in the right lane, which was not as good as, as the left. And, of course, second round, Jag goes up there and shakes. And, you know, we go right down through there. But we did lose lane choice to Kramer going into the, the semis. Now, you know, we were, uh, we were pretty excited to get past Jag, but then, now you've got to run Kramer, who, as you would say, is probably one of the best, if not, he's in the top three of who's going to let their foot off the clutch the, the best right now in pro stock. And uh, so, so we went up there, and, and we, we were loaded for bear. And, and, you know, I was 0-10 against Kramer, which, you know, quoting Jason Lyon, I, I guess my foot slipped off the clutch or something. <laughs> but it was... Uh, you know, we were 10 against him, and he was good on the tree, but we both shook really hard, and I was able to get my car back in gear and go down through there to take the wind line. Isn't it weird? Like, it's isn't it weird how mental this sport is, like, in terms of, like, like you just talked about, the on-paper disadvantage of a number nine position, like you said, is the path that you have to take to get to a final round is much more difficult, but when you know on Sunday morning, like, when you roll into the racetrack, you know that everything needs to be keyed up to 11 every round, it, it, to me, it's it's an advantage to some degree, right? Because you don't have you don't have a, any sort of comfort level when you're you know not that you're racing scared, but you're racing you're racing probably more intensely than you'd have to otherwise. Well, you know, Eddie Grenache, my crew chief, says it best, and and we talk about this all the time, whether it's in qualifying or whether it's it's on race day. That drag racing is just a it's a very large chess game. You have to make sure that the the calls that you're making and the plans that you're making. You're not just looking at directly what's ahead of you. You have to look two or three runs down the road of where you're trying to get to. And when you roll in on Sunday morning, that's exactly what you have to look at. You have to plan on, okay, this is my road to the finals. Who do I have to raise? What round would I have to raise them? What are their strengths? What are their weaknesses? What have you seen out of that team maybe in second or third round in the past at a different race? How does that driver stage? Who likes to go in first? These are all things that you think about and, and you really try to make an educated plan. And, and that's what we did against, you know, in Seattle, you know, not to keep saying that, but to, to run Bo first round, he's the points leader. He's a dominant guy. It, it was huge for us. And, and, you know, to get to the finals against Greg, you know, now we've, you know, this is, that was our third KB car of the day we had to race. Yeah. We had three KB cars and Jed Coughlin, you know, the elite car. That, that's not an easy day by any means when you looked at it on paper. Yeah, and, and it really was uh, the culmination of your Western swing, too, because, you know, you're a final round. You've appeared in the final round in Denver against Greg. And um, 
the the stuff we talked about earlier in the year. I mean, have have you made changes to your program in terms of um, a, your approach through the season, or is this literally just a maturation process of you know we kind of saw things incubate during the beginning of the year, and now you know through the Western Swing, and now coming into Indy, this team is legitimately running better than it has uh, in years. Well, I think what it is, and let's take Sonoma out of the equation. The Sonoma, we simply, you know, we got out of the groove a little bit, and, and the driver, I, you know, I couldn't get it back into the groove, kind of similar to what happened just in Brainerd with Greg first round. But I got out of the groove, and I went over, and I took out a couple cones. But, you know, we were way ahead of McGehee on that race. So we were, you know, we were going to advance to the second round in Sonoma, and, and we felt that we had a car to go to the finals in Sonoma. We felt that we had a car that could win Sonoma, especially coming off Denver. And then, so we go to Seattle, and obviously, you know, we go through and, and we win Seattle. So our, our Western swing was phenomenal. It was, it was a great race. And, and, you know, we carried that into Brainerd with the same mentality of, you know, we have a car that every time that we unload, we feel that we can, we can win the race regardless of who we have to race. Now that doesn't mean you're going to win. It right. certainly doesn't mean that, you know, the cards are going to fall your way, but we have the confidence that we can win. A lot of that comes from going more rounds throughout the year. And as you go more rounds, you learn. And I, and I'm going to quote David Nickens from years ago when I used to race race with him at the time i hadn't won around in pro stock and when we finally won around in dallas in 06 or 07 and then we lost second round he says listen matt now you know how to win first round you're going to learn how to win second round one of these races and after that then you can learn how to win third round and then someday you'll learn how to win a final but he said you have to you have to have won around to to know how to win that round going forward and and that's what we've done we've as, as we've went to more second rounds and more semifinals and more finals, we've, we've adjusted our program to what to expect from not only track conditions, but the competitors and, and just having a better understanding of how to race on Sunday. Weird question, but how important is uh, the element of fun in this whole program? Because when I look at you and I think when a lot of fans look at you, they do see a guy who appears anyway from, from, from our TV screens that you're having a good time, and it doesn't normally it doesn't come across from a lot of people in the way it does from you. And I certainly don't think it's an act, but I guess how important is the fun element of this, especially now that uh, you're in a championship hunt? Oh, it's uh, the 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 day that we show up at a racetrack and we're not having fun is the day that we're just not unloading the car. We 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 take it extremely serious our goal is to wear the white hat at the end of the year i make no bones about it i don't care who stands in our way we're going to mow through everybody to the best of our ability and try to win the championship but the number one thing we're going to do is we're going to have fun while we're there we're going to we're going to have just a lot of camaraderie with the people that are out there and 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 brainerd was 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 just that you know we got to experience the zoo for the first time and and obviously there was a lot of people over there and and you know it's just a good time you're you're around your friends and your family and and all my team when we load up and we go to dinner it's a great evening every night whether whether we've qualified poorly or we're qualified on the top or you know we've won rounds lost rounds we're going to enjoy being there because most people do not have this opportunity correct in the fact that it and you can complain about anything that's going on in your life when you <laughs> when when you're out there at the racetrack but how many people get to actually strap into a pro stock car and let the clutch out and turn on a wind light against someone like Greg Anderson? 
Oh. Very few people. Yeah. So if you can't have fun doing that, then then go do something else. Go golf, go fish, go do another sport where you can have fun, but don't come to the drag races and be miserable. Yeah, no, I'm uh, 100% on that, uh, 100% on that same wavelength uh, with you there. And I think, you know, one of the other things that's great in that your interview in the semifinals heading to the finals in Seattle was you you and Greg were standing down there with Jamie. And this, to me, was like the greatest example of it's not necessarily what you say, but it's how you say it. And, you know, she asked, you know, what your plan was basically, and you, you know, in a very loose and cool way. You said, well, I'm just going to leave on him and get to the finish line first and outrun him. And so many times, like in drag racing or wherever else, it's like, when somebody says something like that, it gets overhyped or whatever, but your delivery on that line, I need to commend you on it because it was loose and it was funny and it even made Greg kind of chuckle next to you. So it was, it was great. Well, I don't think he was chuckling at my line. I thought he, I'm pretty convinced that he felt that he had, he had me right where he wanted me. He was going to put me in the right lane, which I, which I had just shook in the, the run before, you know, in the semis and that he was going to have the preferred lane. He definitely had all the momentum in his favor he he has a team that is capable of winning anything anywhere at any time and i truly believe that they felt that they had me right where they right where they wanted me but it, it goes back to my earlier conversation we're not going to back down we're going to go up there and we're going to race and and we made some really good decisions going into the final round eddie granacci and my entire team pulled together and that was probably the quickest turnaround we've ever had had to do since i've been racing we uh we backed into the pits at 3.01, and the NHRA official said, okay, 3.39 live TV, you have to start your cars to roll into the water. So we had 38 minutes to turn the car around. Jeez. And, you know, we're a very small team, and we turned it around, and we pulled up into the lanes at the exact same time that Greg did. And it was uh, it, it was just an honor to be up there to, to race him. And, and at some level, him winning this, him winning. Seattle would have been pretty neat for the sport just to, to take the you know to sweep the swing, especially with John winning you know 150 and Austin winning. But at the end of the day, I'm glad we won. I'm glad we took it away from him. That's something that everybody will look at for a long time. Oh yeah, no, and and uh, it there's no such thing as a foregone conclusion in drag racing, but sometimes, myself included, you feel like you can look at stuff and go, well, here's how this is going to play out, and then all of a sudden it didn't, and it and it set the stage for everything that happened after it. So <clears throat> it really was uh, it really was one for the books. We had a great shot uh, at the top end. Amber, you know, got down there, and she just, I mean, she climbed up on you like a spider monkey, man. She literally jumped <laughs> into your arms, and it was a great, you know, she obviously wasn't there when you won the first one, correct? So this was her first. No, experience. she was for for Houston. She she wasn't at she wasn't at the racetrack. She was home watching it live on TV, and and uh, the security cameras in our house. It was so funny because when we won Houston, I got her jumping up and down on the security cameras, going nuts. <laughs> and and so I told her, you know, I can't wait for you to you know to actually be there when we win the next one. And so that was a. Uh, she about she about took me out when she came running and jumped into my arms, but that was uh, one of the greatest feelings I've ever had. Uh, you know, her support is just uh, it's monumental to, to me being able to race. Yeah, no, it's it's fantastic. And uh, if we can if we can dip off the racetrack for a second, uh, something that happened in the interim between us speaking on this show was was you and uh, a group of investors uh, purchasing the company that uh, you would have worked for for a long time, Total Seal Piston Ring. So um, I'd like to ask about how that's going and and what responsibilities uh, on a day to day basis uh, have changed for you there 
Well, it's 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 going really well. Um, you know, between uh, Promise Equity and John Vesely uh, and myself, we were able to you know purchase uh, Total Seal from the Moriarty family. They they had owned Total Seal for 52 years, and it was a really good thing I think for for them to move on and and in, in their paths and their lives. And it was a really good thing for me to. to in, in the path of my life, and and everybody here is excited about the uh, the momentum that Total Seal has right now. You know, we're looking to go into a, a pretty uh, pretty substantial growth mode as as time goes on. I think there's a lot of business out there that we're going to capitalize on. So my my role has changed from kind of being involved with day to day operations and overseeing most of the things that happen in the company to now actually having the keys to the entire company. Uh, to say that my stress level has went up would be an understatement um (laughs) sleep used to be something i enjoyed i haven't figured out what sleep is anymore but at at the end of the day you know we got 60 employees here they all have a a lot of faith in in the direction that the company's going and and without them and without all the people that work night and day here i certainly wouldn't be able to go out and and have fun and and race and and do all the things i get to do but I, but I also try to make sure everybody realizes I'm here to work as hard as they are. I'm, I'm typically here early and I'm here late and I'll, it, it doesn't matter if the floors need swept that I'll, I'll do whatever it takes. Uh, but my, my, my goals now are to just take the helm and, and grow this company. How much, uh, you know, you're a veteran, obviously, uh, you're a submariner. Uh, how much of that life experience gets applied uh, either in the office or at the racetrack or really anywhere? I mean, is it is it more just directionally things in your life you call on that for, or do you, can you actually employ it directly for, say, management stuff at the office? I think it's a mindset. I think it's do whatever it takes to get the job done, and, and, and no, and I can't, and negative words like that should never be part of your mindset. It's no different than it's no different than pulling into the water box in the second round in Brainerd, where you're having all kinds of issues in the car, and you, you just don't quit. You say, "I'm going to do whatever it takes. I'm going to make the best decisions I can, and I'm going to use all the tools that are around me and the adversity that's happening. I'm going to figure out a way to to overcome it and move forward." So I don't think it matters whether you're talking business. I don't think it matters if you're talking your personal life or if you're talking racing. Your mindset is, I can accomplish this. I can move forward, and I know I'm going to have I know I'm going to have issues, but I have to figure out a way to just handle them and not let them handle me. That second round in Brainerd, like as as far as singular moments go, like I can't think of another time in years I've seen that much of a thrash at, at the very last second on the starting line, and then the resultant run after it is great. You know how this works usually. Normally the car doesn't want to run or it won't fire, and then the thing does fire up, and the guy lets the clutch out, and the thing just falls on its face or whatever happens. But for that all to happen, and then you go 660 and had a a solid light, um, walk us through the scenario because my understanding is uh, the car wouldn't remain lit, right? Is that what was going on? It wouldn't idle? Yeah, we had a problem in Q1. It was similar, and I rolled into the the water box, and I went to – to do the burnout and it sounded like the car was you know on about half the engine and I, I started doing the burnout and it was just horrible and I pushed a clutch in and the car shut off and I refired it and backed up and when I got back the car was just ratty it didn't want to run it wouldn't take throttle everything about it was wrong so I shut off all the switches and then you know I I, I had literally in Q1 I had already unhooked my seat belts because I said we were broke Okay. And Eddie stuck his head in the car and said, what's wrong? I said, I don't know. It's broke. He says, it sounds horrible. I said, well, I'm just going to refire it. So I, I refired it and all the, 
the car sounded fine. Everything was normal. And it, I don't know if you were watching any of the any of it in Q1, but so as I'm trying to roll forward, I'm trying to hook up all my seatbelts and get yes. latched back in the car. <laughs> and Eddie's screaming at me to turn the wheel. And, and <laughs> I don't have my hands on the wheel. I'm trying to get my belts on. So I'm going the wrong direction. Amber's in the car trying to hook my belts up. And there was no way I was going to even get close to the pre-stage beam until I was fully yeah. hooked up in the car. So once I got my belts on, I just, I knew I was, you know, holding up the other guy. So I rolled into the beams and, and, you know, let the clutch out and it was clean down through there. I think we went 62, 63, 64, whatever it was. I, we were, we were, you know, a top half car and, and we came back and we we're like, what was that about? And we didn't find anything wrong. We couldn't find what had happened. So it was like an anomaly, but mechanically everything was perfect. So it was like, okay, it had to be a glitch in the computer. And, you know, we talked to the, a couple of the elite guys, and they were like, we don't know what happened either. It just it didn't sound right. So let's, let's fast forward now to, <laughs> to round two. To, yeah. eat, to, to, to round two. I fire the car. It does the same thing. Oh, God. So I go to do the burnout, and I stop short on the burnout because I know I have an issue with the engine or with something in the electronics. And, you know, it's not a mechanical issue because we already went through this in Q1. And, and, and that was a godsend that this happened in Q1 because it had, had Q1 happen in E2, I would have never made the run in E2. I would have just shut it yeah. off and, and left the car off um, because it sounded that bad. But now I know we don't have a mechanical issue. So I get back and I do the same thing. I shut the car off and I refire it and it's just as bad. And Eddie's up in the car, and he says it sounds worse than it did in Q1. And he says, Matt, we're broke. I said, I know this, but I'm staging the car. Yeah. And he says to me, don't go very far. Don't hurt it. Because, you know, he's thinking if there's something wrong, we've got a really good engine under our hood. Yeah. Elites gave us great power. The last thing you want to do is hurt your best engine with, a, with Indy and the countdown coming up. And so I'm, I'm just trying to keep the car running at this point in time and trying to get it somewhat straight, somewhat into the beams. And Bo goes in and double bulbs me. Yes. And, and, and you know, I, I kind of, I don't know really how I feel about that. I, I know what his intention was. His intention was he was like, hey, I've waited long enough. Throw yep. the red light to that guy. Uh, you know, I, but I watched him a few weeks ago with Greg. Greg had his front end off, you know, or whatever. Greg, Greg sat there for two or three minutes, it seemed like, and Bo just sat there and waited for him. But that's a team car. Sure. You know, with me, I guess he's looking at it from a different perspective. And I, I wouldn't have done the same thing. That's all I'm going to say about that. Okay. I, I certainly would have waited for the other guy. But, you know, if he sat there in a pre-stage beam knowing that our car is at least coming forward, I wouldn't have went in and lit the second ball. But okay. neither here nor there. So I just, I just said, okay, I guess I was pissed off. <laughs> I just rolled into the first ball, rolled into the second ball, and let the clutch out. And the shift light came on. I was like, wow, that felt good. And I pulled second gear, and I never seen him. From the time I put it in second gear, I never seen him. And I was like, that is unbelievable. And when Eddie said we went 60, yeah. I was like, well, <laughs> the motor's not hurt, but we've got something wrong. And it was a, you know, it was a, a round win that we probably shouldn't have got. And... We watched the car go down the racetrack, and, and uh, Tony Pedrick and I just both looked at each other, and I think he said to me, he goes, the only guy more surprised about that happening than us is him. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm telling you, I expected when I, when I put it up on the chip and let the clutch out, I expected it to do something wrong, yeah. and it didn't. It felt really good, and we made a really nice run for the, for the conditions. 
and I think low for the session was maybe a 58.9. I think either Eric or Jag went low for the session, but, but barely a hundredth quicker than us. And so, you know, we went back, and as we were towing back, I seen Jake, he, you know, he's the, the, the tuner and engine guy at uh, for Elite for all their cars. And I said, Jake, because I don't have a spare ECU, I said, Jake, I need an ECU. And they brought that over, and I had them also, I said, bring me eight injectors, because yep. I didn't have injectors for their engine. So they grabbed the eight injectors that were in Freeman's car. And so we switched uh, eight injectors, put an ECU in it. And and that affects the tune-up of the car. They, there's no doubt that when you start switching those components, yeah, yeah. everything changes. And, and we refired it five minutes before we had to be up in the, in the lanes before they called us. And it was missing pretty bad, just idling. And I ran over and got Jake, and I said, because I, I tuned my own car. Right. But I ran over and got Jake and said, listen, I need help. Because to me, you want to have the most knowledgeable and, and, and all the information that you can have around you to make the best decisions, especially when you're in a in a – in a mode like that to where you're out of time and you, and you've got to run, you know, you got to run Erica. So you want to make sure you make a great decision on what you're doing. And he came over and said, ah, you got a couple cylinders lean on the idle circuit, throw some fuel in those. And, you know, it had nothing to do with how the car was going to do the burnout or run. It just didn't idle the same. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, I, I thank Jake for coming over. You know, had I had more time and thought about it, I would have came to the same conclusion quickly. But I believe that the team that, will win is a team that is willing to put their egos aside and use the best people around them and use all the knowledge you can to make the best decisions. Oh, that's a fact. Uh, we talk about it probably too often on the show, but we talk about Ron Tober a lot and the way he tunes that race car has nothing to do with uh, him <clears throat> wanting to prove to the world how fast he can go. You know, Ron Tober tunes the race car with 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 no ego and the results, uh, the results show themselves. So I agree with you 100% there. One last question before I send you back to your uh, to your appointed duties there at Total Seal. You know, some uh, in life or in racing, whichever aspect we want to look at. You know, when we get into a, uh, a situation like you're in now, where your expectation level of performance, your expectation level of success, kind of raises on a week to week basis. We're coming into one of the you know most challenging parts of the year with the the playoffs, the countdown. How do you manage? the mental side of this where now you're expecting to do things maybe you weren't expecting to do before how do you kind of keep ahead of that stay positive and if you do fall short not let that uh, make it make it feel like a step backwards well i could uh i guess one word would be wine that 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 (laughs) definitely helps (laughs) the uh it's these conversations happen in our group more more often than not and and Chris Singleton from CIP one, you know, he's my partner on the car is, you know, we've been ever since I've raced pro stock, he's pretty much been around me and supported me and been instrumental on our team. We were sitting in, boy, it had to be Sonoma, I think. And I think we were qualified fifth and it was Saturday night. We were at dinner and we were, we were upset about being qualified fifth because we felt we had a better car. We certainly didn't make the runs that we should have in the, in the sessions that we should have. And I looked at him and I said, Chris, the one thing we got to, we got to have is perspective. Yeah. How many years ago we were just hoping, hoping to have a chance to maybe be number 16. And how many races did we load up where we didn't qualify? Now we're unhappy that we're fifth. I said, it's got to be perspective. And by the way, pass that bottle of wine over here. Cause let's, <laughs> let's get some better perspective. And, and, that, and yeah. that's what it comes down to. You have to remember where you came from and you have to look around you and, and look at the people who are in a worse position than you in life. It doesn't matter about racing, just perspective in life. 
I'm lucky. I've, I've been able to put myself into positions with a, the assistance of a lot of other people around me to get to where I'm at today. And it's, it's because of the hard work of a lot of everybody around me that I've been able to get here, including myself, just like you, I'm sure you look at the same thing. You've worked really hard to get yourself into the position that you're at, but it's taken some people along the way to help you. Absolutely. Never forget where you came from. Never forget how you got to this point. And the minute that you think that you're unhappy about qualifying fifth or not winning the race, remember it could be a lot worse. Yeah, that's a fact, man. Well, hey, Matt, I appreciate you taking the time, and uh, as always, uh, pleasure to talk to you. I look forward to uh, I look forward to you being the fly in the punch bowl for a lot of people during this countdown, man. You, you have a you have a very fun way about you. You have an attitude and approach that differs uh, that uh, from several of the teams that are you'll be competing with. And I think uh, as as history is a guide, I think you're gonna be uh, you're gonna be someone we're talking about very late in the season. So appreciate your time, Matt. Well, Brian, I thank you very much. I appreciate it. And uh, like I said earlier, you're doing a great job on the show. It was definitely uh, it's entertaining to, to, to watch you and Tony and, and, and Bruno and everybody else on the show. We, uh, we appreciate it and keep up the good work. Thanks, man. You guys make it fun for us, too. So I will see you at the U.S. Nationals. See you next week, bud. Thanks. Always great to talk to Matt Hartford to get his perspective on pro stock, on his career, and how things are shaping up for the countdown at the end of the season. Now it's time to bring on our second guest. He is Mike Clover, the crew chief for Clay Milliken, the Parts Plus, Larice Motorsports Insurance Top Fuel Dragster. This guy has been around, he has done it, and he has done a lot of it with Clay Milliken at his side. Mike Clover, welcome for the first time on to the NHRA Insider Podcast. I'm good. Thank you, Brian. Well, it's uh, cool for you to take some time to hang out with us, and you know we're coming up on the U.S. Nationals. We got a lot of stuff to talk about. Um, I'd really like to start though with your season so far, your kind of reestablishment uh, in the world of top fuel racing with Clay. It's a great story, and um, are you performing at or above your own expectations? Because I think you're overperforming the expectations of many people that were looking from the outside in. Um. Probably, uh, it'd be safe to say we're doing a little bit better than I anticipated. Not a lot better, but a little bit bit better. And what what really have been or what has been the most important building blocks for this team? Because uh, not just your arrival to the team, but also the new blood that you have there, as well as some experienced people. But what has been the what has been the kind of major factors with the success you've had so far this year? Well, I would have to say that it's really well-rounded um you know the ownership group is doing the best they can to give us the most of you know financial resources and uh, it seems like whenever we need a little something they come up with it um we have uh we have a lot of heart uh, all of our people really really invest themselves you know heavily into what we're doing so clay has a saying uh, we race with a lot of heart because we ain't got a lot of parts, <laughs> you know. So you know, it's really our our people, you know, are a big part of it. Um, I think from a technical aspect, Jimbo's support, um, you know, to me has been sure. invaluable. Um, he really helped accelerate my learning curve of getting familiarized with the newer modern features that we have to you know tune the race car with. So um, my learning curve got accelerated from Jim Oberhofer for sure. And he's been a great resource to have a, uh, somebody that I trust, you know, to talk to about all the what if scenarios. Well, what if we try this? What if we try that? Well, what's your experience with this? 
What's yeah. your experience with that? So I've worn him out with, <laughs> you know, the hundred questions of, you know, what he's been doing with, uh, with Doug's car sure, and, you know, how that can relate to what we're doing with this car, uh, which is different than what both Jimmo and I have dealt with in the past, you know, running other people's race teams and whatnot. So, it's a little different engine and clutch combination than either as either of us have used. So we've tried our best to exploit it, you know, to our advantage. But the difference for us, you know, has been the people overall, you know, just to circle back. It's not one person, you know, it's the whole entire group are fairly well-rounded. And as the season's gone on, everybody's gained a little more experience and we keep doing a little bit better and better. We didn't, race as well as we wanted to up in Brainerd but uh, you know we'll use that as motivation and information you know coming into Indy and the countdown you know speaking of uh, of motivation and stuff like that you know uh, by and large I think uh, announcers are generally schmucks myself included uh, when it was announced that you were going to come back to be with Clay to be the crew chief on this car the there was a lot of people that were like really okay and I think what's interesting is one, uh, like you said, you have a great relationship with Jim O, but I mean, you, you came back in and, and it really didn't look like you'd missed a beat at all having been away and we've seen it. And I know you've seen it too. Guys like Dale Armstrong were away for a few years, came back and it just didn't go anywhere near as well as things are going for you guys. So I guess what was your personal reaction to, uh, the overall reaction when the announcement was made that you're going to come back with clay there was a lot of people that questioned the decision. I guess, where was your head at? Well, I, you know, don't want to sound cocky or no. anything, but didn't doubt what my abilities were. Sure. Um, you know, I, I, everything I've done in my life has been, uh, has revolved around racing in some way, shape or form. Even the period of time that I was away from racing, everything that I learned about manufacturing and management and, more current human resource standards in terms of, you know, how to train people, sure. how to recruit people, how to how to find continuous improvement when it seems like you've beat the dead horse, <laughs> you know, a whole bunch of times. So I learned an awful lot um, about how to perform better in the racing environment when I wasn't in the racing environment. So I I had a little you know, secret in my back pocket, I knew that I would be a lot better overall, um, aside from the tuning elements. And uh, I knew I would be better at racing. I would be better at management. I would be better at organization. I would be better at training. I, I would be better at everything. So I, I knew I had a little advantage over my past racing experience coming back in. So I've been able to take all the things I've learned from all the people I've worked with outside of racing and put that to use to at least to the best of my ability. So that's, you know, something that everybody outside of, or, or excuse me, all the people, the pundits, if you will, wouldn't have been aware of because they weren't with me and didn't see what my personal growth has been and, you know, what kind of benefits I brought to the two companies that I worked for when I wasn't involved in racing. So um, I, I knew we would do well. It was just a matter of time. Sure. You know, could we get it together in time to be competitive, you know, for the countdown? Um, you know, that was the goal. And I knew that we could attain that goal, uh, getting the car to run a little better and getting the crew um, shaped up uh, early in the season the way we did, That's that was the bonus. You know, we kind of got there a little sooner than we had 
plan for um you know you 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 plan for the worst and hope for the best and you know, we kind <laughs> sure. of the end of it at least so far the real tell of the tale is going to be you know how well we do in the countdown and and that's where uh focus attention to detail and and um not making any mistakes letting a car drop a cylinder you know, at a critical round, you know, you're not going to get away with that kind of junk in the countdown. You're going to really have to be on your game. So, you know, we, we still have an uphill battle. What, uh, you know, one of the most fascinating elements, uh, I think, of, of your job as a crew chief is away from the race car. And as impressive it is to watch guys with your mental ability tune one of these cars and make it do what it does. I'm always fascinated by the interpersonal side of it. And just to double back on something you said a minute ago about, you know, the time you actually were away from the sport for for a period, then you came back in that uh, kind of rounding growth, I guess, in terms of the the human element side of it, the management side of it. How does that play into a situation like in Epping, New Hampshire, when you guys have to you're in that moment, you're in that thrash moment trying to get up there to the starting line. Things are things are not exactly going according to plan. Right. Um, So I guess. How did Mike? How did Mike Clover handle that situation differently than he would have before, knowing more than you know than you now? Sorry, knowing more now than you did know before. A little less yelling and screaming, and <laughs> a little more action. <laughs> you know, a little more guidance. And um, in in the case of you know the Epping situation, once I'd realized that we were in a bad spot, I tried to do the repair myself rather than task you know somebody else you know, with, sure. with trying to get those studs out that were broken on the front of the engine. So, um, you know, I kind of took the bull by the horns there myself. Um, but, you know, I'd say just exactly what, I, you know, I'd have to repeat myself. Yeah. You know, I've, I've learned, you know, about people, about um, human resources. I've had some proper training from Fortune 400 human resource departments, you know, the people at Plexus Corporation were, were wonderful in, in providing training and guidance, um, you know, being in charge of a, an entire operations, you know, uh, quality management system has really helped me to identify what the proper elements of business are and how to organize yourself in order to achieve those organizational goals. So just to just to taking everything apart, looking at it a little differently from a different perspective, um, understanding that people's performance is more about their training than their ability. Oh, absolutely. Uh, yeah. So, you know, coming at everything from a little different angle um, and providing the proper support and and uh, training, you know, to people, you know, showing them that they're more capable than they than quite often believe. Um, and we, you know, do that through proper training, instruction and setting realistic expectations for people and expecting people to grow and providing them the resources to have personal growth in their job, you know, on the race team. So, so to go back in time now to an era when none of the stuff you just talked about really existed in drag racing, we're going to go back to 1989. You know, we're coming up on the U S nationals at that time. You were, you were working with Don Prudhomme. You guys had really, I think one of the great kind of dominating performances of his whole career that year, you guys won the race in, in fine style. I want to know what it was like to start with, to be working with Don Prudhomme 30 years ago, and then uh, take me through that race weekend. Working for Don Prudhomme, I could probably sum up in one word, intense. <laughs> oh, I can only imagine. <laughs> and it, 
much more intense than anybody will ever know unless they actually work for Don. <laughs> now, every single one of those guys will also tell you that he's one of the best people to work for in the business. Sure. Um, completely different story if we're not on his side of the ropes, though. <laughs> completely different story. He, he demands the most from you. He demands everything that you can possibly come up with. And, you know, he might actually want a little more than that. But, you know, he provides you that uh, he provides you the the arena to prove yourself. You know, he's going to give you a chance. The better you do, the more he's going to let you do. But also at the same time, he's going to expect more and more from you. So it doesn't end with him. It, you just have to keep going more and more and more and harder and harder and harder. And uh, coming into Indy in 89 we knew we had a really good running race car and we had broken a series of driveline parts earlier in the season we started with uh input shafts breaking input shafts so we made a bigger input shaft and then we started we broke the drive shaft a couple times nobody's ever broken yeah, a drive shaft weird one bar it was you know we did we broke some crazy stuff in the driveline and you know we just kept making bigger and stronger parts um, the, back then, we used to use a two-speed, so the guys at Lenco were great at, at, at helping us evolve and build bigger, stronger parts. And then we finally got to the rear end, and then we started twisting off the pinion of the rear end. <laughs> and we couldn't run the car as hard as we wanted to because it would break something in the driveline. We were we were quietly no one knew this but us but we had to keep we had to run the car back down wow we got to indy and we finally got our new rear end gears that uh, strange had made for us and we'd increased the diameter of the pinion so when we got to indy we could finally turn the clutch up to where we knew we could run it and that's what created that incredible performance we we just had driveline parts that wouldn't break that we had confidence in and we could run the car hard and we did and that was an incredible weekend and um you know there it'll be tough to to surpass that <laughs> in terms of performance and dominance and that kind of thing yeah and and it's it's cool to me like when i went back and, and watched i love going back and watching the old races and uh it was just round by round it was just so amazing and the you could tell it, it was even in the final round interview after uh, after Perdomo had won. Even you know Steve Evans, who is not a guy that <clears throat> strikes me, it was very easily over impressed by things. You could hear in his voice this almost like wonderment at what you guys had accomplished. Um, how on a weekend like that, you know, you win the race Sunday afternoon, having a beer or whatever with the guys. How quickly would uh, would Perdomo kind of then lock it back down again to get ready for the next one? Or was there even that celebratory period before you locked it back down for the next one? Don would celebrate and you know I was I was just telling this story to my wife the other day you know he wanted to make sure that nobody got up early the next morning after after winning the race you know hey I want all you guys to sleep in don't come out you know you know everybody you know this this is a big weekend you know so he he was always really good about uh you know about giving you a break you know he he you know certainly was probably experiencing the very same thing big yeah. weekend you know really tough on you mentally so when the race is finished you're really tired you need a little bit of rest you know and snake was always really good about being that kind of 
being that kind of boss and uh, not making you come out there to crack a dawn the next morning to, to work even harder <laughs> to win again. Um, I, I, you know, we went to the next race after Indy and the car was running really good. So we were at Maple Grove and uh, we smoked the tires really, really far down the track. And um, I was telling Snake, I said, you know, I think if we if we lean on it a little bit more, it might actually run even better and then that's when he told me that I could drive it and he could tune it. <laughs> he had his hands full because the car was making a lot of power and could really spin the tires really far down the track, uh, farther than we'd ever experienced or anticipated we would be able to do that. Jeez. And it was no fun to drive when it would come loose down there, you know, close to half track. Oh, yeah. Um, that doesn't seem like it would be the most entertaining spot to be in. No, no, no. no. He, he did. <laughs> He wasn't having any fun driving that thing. It was like Mr. Toad's wild ride then. It, 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 it wanted to go everywhere but straight. You know, the back was always trying to pass the front. When we weren't smoking the tires, that thing was usually running low ET back then. I like to tell people that nobody ever outran us. We just smoked the tires. <laughs> you know, we, we very seldom got beat, you know, with that car in 89. And, if, and the only beating that was done was us beating ourselves by smoking the tires yeah it's a it's an amazing thing man and you know kind of moving forward to to your your era with clay and the ihra um which you know i was i was there for most of that as, as one of the event announcers back then and talk to me about what made that particular group so successful i mean you know obviously you and clay are, are a matched unit that uh will go down in drag racing history in my mind anyway as one of the best driver crew chief tandems that we've ever seen but what made that particular werner enterprises team the powerhouse that it was well we had a um we had a secret weapon his name was peter lehman <laughs> yeah and um so for the for those of you who aren't familiar with Peter Lehman, um, he was the heir to the Felpro throne, and his father and his grandfather sold the company out from underneath him to Federal Mogul. So Peter didn't get to run the company the way that his family, his father and grandfather, and so on before him had had managed uh, Felpro, or at least a big part of it. Um, so Peter Peter went racing instead. And he was a phenomenal team owner. Um, Peter let Clay drive the car. He let me tune the car. Um, we were able to put together a sponsorship program with Werner Enterprises that was just absolutely fantastic. So between Werner and their financial support and Peter Lehman and his financial support, we had resources um, that were second to none, uh, regardless of whether you were in the IHRA or you were in the NHRA. Um, back then, we had 10 engines, 10 sets of heads. Jeez, you know, we always yeah. had four clutches. We had four really good superchargers. You know, we had the best parts that money could buy. And um, like I say, the you know, Peter let me run the team the way I wanted to run the team. You know, he didn't tell Clay how to drive. We all got to do what we were really good at. Peter got to manage the team and the sponsorship, and I got to tune, and Clay got to drive, and you know we just gave everybody everything they needed to be successful, and we were. 
Yeah, it was. I mean, it was very impressive to watch. And, you know, and it wasn't as if you were racing against a bunch of cans of corn either. I mean, there were great cars over there at that point. We, you know, you had Bruce Litton, uh, obviously Logano family has been part of the, uh, part of that program for a long time as well. So, you know, it, it's Paul, it, Paul Romine. Yeah, Paul Romine. Absolutely. Herbert's team, you know, with, you know, with their, with, you know, Herbert having two teams, one in the NHRA, one in the IHRA. So there were a number of cars you know, racing in the ITRA and for several years, I would say the competition level was was fairly close to NHRA in terms of the kind of people that we had to beat in order to win those races. You know, Shirley was yes. racing in the IHRA then. Um, so, you know, there there were there were no there wasn't a bunch of people rolling over and no. playing dead for it. <laughs> that's a that's a fact. That is an absolute fact. Um, and, a, and a lot of those a lot of those weekends, Brian. You know, you knew this because you were there. Our performance with the Werner car was on par with a lot of the NHRA events that oh, were absolutely. happening the same weekend, and you know, um, so you know, we had a we had a great running car. I, I'm I'm really proud of everything that all of the guys put together, and and you know, we did crazy things like win ten races in a row. Uh, you know, you 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 can't make any mistakes and win ten races in a row. You know, you just you just can't. You know, so. That was a pretty phenomenal period of time, and there was a lot of uh, growth, um, you know, between Clay and I, in terms of you know we're we're all warmed up, ready to to have that same kind of performance and dominance again. Um, you know, we're we're in a building phase right now, but but Clay and I believe that we can have that same kind of dominance that we had in the IHRA, you know, here in the NHRA now. Yeah, and what makes it a good relationship? I mean, there are people, you know, there are people, driver, uh, driver, crew chief kind of combinations that um, have been successful, and everybody kind of has their own reasonings for it. But for you and Clay, what makes you two uh, kind of uh, peanut butter and jelly, so to speak? Uh, probably trust. You know, I know that I can be completely honest with Clay and tell him, you know, what I see, what I think he might need to do differently. I can also say that, you know, I tell him when it's not his fault, yeah. you know, when the car's just not behaving correctly, not to, you know, beat himself up or anything. You know, I try to, you know, put all the, the pressure and responsibility where it belongs. Sometimes that's on Clay's shoulders. Sure. Most of the time it's on mine. But, um, you know, we just we just work well together and, and we're honest and, and we have we have trust. So we work through whatever our issues are and, you know, we just focus on whatever the next thing we need to do is. No, it's cool. It's a neat, it's a neat thing. And, uh, I think it's, I think it's, it speaks volumes to both of you. How many people really enjoy the fact that it isn't just the Mike show or isn't just the clay show. It's almost when one of your guys' names comes up, the other guy's name is mentioned directly after it. And I think that's, uh, that's pretty unique and cool in drag racing. That tends to be a, we tend to, we tend to use our focal points on single people where you guys really are a, a one, two combination. Um, for the U S nationals, uh, you know, guys like me and the fans, we make a big deal out of Indy. We make a big deal out of the history. We, to me, it does feel different to go to that place. Do you have to treat it differently or do you have to treat it the same? Meaning it's a work, it's a work weekend. We do the same things, but you know, it does the pressure, the size of Indy affect the way you do your job. You say to yourself every year before you go to Indy, I'm not going to let the pressure of Indy dictate what I do or don't do uh, or something to that effect. And you get to Indy 
and you're caught up in that whirlwind of excitement and you know the we have extra points are available yeah. for that that race so that adds you know the opportunity is greater so um there's no greater burden than that of a good opportunity so people <laughs> that's a great line pressure. um you know but you try everybody says the same thing we're going to try not to let the pressure of indy you know we don't want to succumb to that we don't want that to be you know our downfall we'll just treat it like another race so you, you say all those things to yourself, but it's still Indy. It's still the biggest race of the year. It's still the one everybody remembers. You, you know, bet. everybody knows Terry won it last year. So, you know, this year, you know, it's, you know, who's going to be the guy that won Indy? And, you know, nobody ever remembers who was runner-up. <laughs> That's a fact. That's a fact. <laughs> so it wouldn't be a good time for us to have a runner-up like we've had so many of this year already. But, uh, you know, the main thing for us is to focus on um, – getting in the best position we can for the countdown which is there's a really big exciting race for second place right now there is only a few points that separate a whole bunch of cars and um you know we want to be second we can't be first because the capco guys have already you know taken that crown and uh hats off to those guys because they've done an incredible job this year already and they're certainly going to be the most notable force to be reckoned with but the rest of us are going to fight for second, and that's an important, you know, program. You know, we'd, we'd like to be second going into the countdown. That, that would be a, a big victory mentally for us. But we'll, you know, we'll just race the best we can, and, you know, we're locked into the countdown. Yep. So that's the most important thing. We've we've achieved, you know, that goal last weekend in, in Brainerd. We were able to do well enough to lock ourselves in. So, you know, now it's all about getting ready for this championship and trying to win Indy because that's such a big, big feather in everyone's hat. One last question before I let you go. You mentioned that you've had a bunch of runner-ups this year, which is a fact. I mean, this, the car has been in a multitude of finals. It just hasn't gone over the hump yet. Um, two, two questions. What have you taken away from these runner-up finishes? And is it something that requires a lot of analysis on your part when you know when you're getting there but not quite getting over the top of the hill yet or is it a situation where hey we're making final rounds we're going places we're obviously in strong contention for second place so do you spend a lot of time breaking down those final rounds or is it on to the next one after for this season anyway you haven't got over the hill yet well you know there's a there's a lot of analysis brian that goes into all this um you know we were a little too soft in one of our final rounds and just plain old-fashioned got outrun when we could have pushed a little bit more and and run just that little bit better so the next time we were able to get into a final round we smoked the tires trying to be too aggressive and trying to outrun our opponent so that kind of shot ourselves in the foot there um so you know you try to learn from your lessons um but the secret to winning is doing the right thing at the right time um, and not trying to run a race from two or three races ago, you know, today when you're in the final round. So we'll just take the circumstances, you know, a as they are in the final round. And, you know, we'll try to make our car win. Um, we didn't try to lose any of those sure. finals. Sure. You know, we weren't going, oh, we don't really care if we, <laughs> right. if we win. We just don't have to make another run. You know, it's probably not quite like that. But, um, you know, we, we want to win. The important thing is to win in the countdown. And I'm really proud of the number of final rounds that we've been in. 
Um, they've been important in the points battle. That's what's gotten us, you know, into the points position we're in right now. I think we're in fourth right now, but we're less than one round out of second. So, you know, we're we're right where we need to be. Um, it'll it'll be up to us to race well in Indy and collect more points than the other cars to finish second. Um, you know, I, I guess maybe hidden in there somewhere is, am, am I disappointed that we haven't won any races? A little bit, yeah. I'm a little bit disappointed, but, you know, we're in a growing phase, and being in final rounds is very important, whether you win or not. Um, something Snake always used to say was, you can't win the race unless you're in the final round. So, you know, uh, we keep finding our way to a final round, we'll eventually start winning, and when we were able to get to some final rounds in the IHRA and we won a couple, it got to be more of a habit. So I'm hoping that we can make the same kind of magic happen again. Um, and in order for it to last a long time, we have to build up to it. In my opinion, you can't just walk in and take the place over, you know, absolutely um, likely to happen. So we're, we're just building, we're, we're working, you know, the Capco team didn't grow into the, the commanding position they're in overnight they grew into it you know we want to do the same thing we want to have success that will be lasting and, and enduring we want to represent our sponsors well and and you know our owners and families you know they're all sacrificing you know for us to be able to race so we want everybody to be happy with what we're doing well, Mike, I appreciate you taking the time today. Uh, it's been, uh, selfishly, it's been very fun to watch what this team has done this year and, and how it has come together and how you have evolved uh, from the Phoenix Test to where you guys are at today. So I wish you the best of luck, and hopefully uh, we're shaking hands uh, late on Monday afternoon in Indy. Thanks, Brian, and, and I hope to hope to see you in the winter circle. Thanks, Mike. All right, Brian. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. A couple of great conversations and a couple of great guys on the podcast here this week. Matt Hartford and Mike Clover doing it their own way, succeeding, and perhaps not in the conventional method that many of their competitors use to do the same thing. It'll be fun to watch both of them competing at the U.S. Nationals. And speaking of that, next week's show will be a U.S. Nationals spectacular. We'll be talking history, be talking who we should be favoring, we'll be talking about car counts, of which they appear to be very large. 21 top fuel cars already pre-entered. It uh, is going to be something else to watch qualifying all five rounds of it over the course of the week. We'll be back next week with more NHRA Insider Podcast. Until then, please follow, download, share, and like the podcast. Audience is growing at each and every one of these we do. I love doing it, and I hope you like listening. See you next time.